afternoon. My name is Candace Nichols, and I am the senior minister of the Brookline Church of Christ in Brookline, Massachusetts, a town that is part of the greater Boston area. The title of my talk today is For You Need Endurance, One Woman's Journey in Ministry. This will be part of my personal story. I do not presume to speak for all women in ministry, nor do I think that my particular experience in ministry is universal. Still, I share part of my story today in the hopes that it might be helpful in some way to those who hear it. Will you pray with me, please? Holy God, though I am an imperfect instrument, I pray always that you will use me as you see fit. My only desire, O oh Lord, is that you work through my work and my words, and that you will be glorified through them. Through Christ our Lord, I pray. Amen. For you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. This is what I think is the thesis statement of the Confessions of St. Augustine. The first time I read the Confessions, my life was changed forever. I want to say that it completely knocked me off my course in life, but I think it would be more accurate to say that this book knocked me on course. It was my first semester at the University of North Texas. I had transferred there as a junior after doing coursework at a community college, and I had been accepted to the music school at UNT. The week before classes started, however, I realized that I didn't want to study music anymore. It was a highly competitive program, and I am not a competitive person. I also found that the intense study of the subject was, for me, stealing the joy of, from music. And so the week before classes began, I changed my schedule. And at that point, you kind of have to take whatever classes you can get. I ended up in a world history or a Western civilization class. I actually can't remember now what the name of the class was. But this class wasn't using a traditional textbook. It was reading original sources. And Augustine's Confessions was one of those texts. I cannot explain to you exactly what happened to me when I read that book. My very rational mind can't wrap itself around it. And at times, my mind wants to deny that it ever happened. But my soul, my soul knows it happened. I realized that I had been called to ministry. However, I don't think it was in that moment that I had been called. I think that was simply the moment that it became clear to me. As I said, this book knocked me on course. I had spent years trying to figure out what it was I wanted to do with my life. I was, by that point, what they call a non-traditional student. And that was primarily because I couldn't decide what I should be or what I should study, and so I just hadn't started school. And I think now, looking back, that the reason that I struggled so much to find my niche is because I had been called to ministry, 
but it was only in that first semester at UNT reading Augustine's Confessions. It was only then that I recognized it. Now, I hadn't spent these years searching um, in, in, a, in a state of running from a call to ministry. I think this is the common image we get when we hear of someone resisting a call to ministry. You've heard a call, you run away from it, or you avoid it. That wasn't what happened for me. I hadn't been able to hear the call. I didn't have the vocabulary for it. I am a child of the Churches of Christ. I am a daughter of the Churches of Christ. A call to ministry was so far outside my experience that I couldn't even hear it. And when I did finally hear the call, I had to work to make it fit with my experience. I knew that if I wanted to stay in Churches of Christ, I would probably not be able to live out my calling in a church, doing church work. Now, I greatly admire, greatly admire some of my closest friends are those who work in children's and youth ministries. I do not have the temperament for that. And so I figured I would help God out. I figured I'd figure out a way to make this call work. And I thought, well, God must mean for me to pursue a PhD and teach. This is surely a path that would be open for me. It would work with my skills and my talents, and it would allow me then to minister to students. This would be my ministry. I had needed endurance to learn a new vocabulary that would allow me to hear God's call. After I graduated from UNT, I went to Abilene Christian University to pursue an MDiv, which I felt would be, give me a good, solid foundation for whatever doctoral studies I would then pursue. I, of course, hoped that I could quickly figure out what area of study I was going to then pursue um, so I could focus on that because, of course, I was going to go on and do a PhD. I did not know that my plan and God's plans were not quite synced yet. Looking back, I can see it, but of course at the time, you never see things then, do you? Hindsight is surely something. The first hint that I got that maybe teaching wasn't where God needed me came in the summer of 2007. I had traveled with two other students and two faculty members to Accra, Ghana, to take two classes with Ghanaian graduate students. One class was exegesis, the other preaching. Both required courses in the MDiv program. Now, if you're not familiar, Churches of Christ in Ghana have very, are very traditional when it comes to gender roles. So there was some debate before we even left about whether I would deliver the sermon for class there or if I would need to save my sermon and deliver it to the class that would meet in the fall. The principal of the school, however, intervened and said that, of course, I should deliver the sermon in class. It was a class requirement, so I would be the only woman in the class and deliver a sermon to men who had never heard women speak in that, in that way before. And so as we took this class together, I worked on my sermon with my classmates. I agonized over it. I struggled with it. I didn't want to do it, but I did. 
the day that we delivered sermons, I delivered my sermon right before lunchtime. We ate lunch together, students and faculty, and my professor later told me that one of the Ghanaian students sat across from him to talk about my sermon. The student said that, having heard me preach, he had to rethink what he wanted for his daughters. Wow. I didn't know what to do with that. I'm still not sure what to do with that, to be honest. That fall semester, the preacher at Minter Lane, the church that I had been a part of for the year that I had lived in Abilene, approached me to ask if I would be willing to work part-time for the church for a semester. The woman who held the position of Minister of Communications would be away for the spring with her husband while he taught an ACU study abroad program in Uruguay. I immediately said yes, thinking that having some experience working in a church would be helpful. About halfway through that semester, the woman for whom I was covering wrote to me and to the elders to say that she would rather not come back to the job. She said it wasn't a good fit with her skill set, and she realized after just a short time away that it had been causing her a great deal of stress. Rest assured, she actually did come back to the church, and she and her husband are vibrant members of that congregation. She just didn't want this job. So the elders approached me to see if I would be interested in staying on longer. I had, at this point, been almost two years into my program, and I had planned to take at least four years to finish my degree. And so I readily agreed to stay in that role while I completed my studies. Because the truth was, I found that I loved the church work. It brought me life and satisfaction that I had never experienced in a job before. Still, I had a plan. And I was sure that my plan was God's plan. But then life intervened. When I had moved to Abilene, I had moved my mother there with me. She had been living in Spokane, Washington, where I am from, where my immediate family still lives. She had wanted to support me in my education, but she couldn't do it financially. So she moved to Abilene with me to help with cooking and cleaning and really just to be an emotional support. And I loved having her there. But her health began to deteriorate. And soon I had to come to terms with the fact that dementia was stealing her from me. It got to the point that I could not safely leave her alone. And my church family stepped in to help me finish out the semester. I would leave her to visit with someone from church while I attended class. It didn't take me long to realize that I would need to put school on hold to care for her, which I gladly did and would do again. For three years, I cared for her full time. And the Minter Lane Church of Christ supported me in my efforts. They made it easy so that I could work from home. They gave me allowances to pay for my cell phone so that the church members could reach me there. One of the women at church put together a rotation of people to sit with my mother on Sunday mornings so that I could attend worship. I was able to keep my mother at home until she passed away. 
the week she died, I was never alone. Church people came and stayed with me for several days, through the day and overnight. When my mother passed away, three other women from church were there with me, and within minutes of her passing, our home was filled with other church members. This church ministered to me in that time. In those years of schooling, working for the church, and caring for my mother, I began to realize that I didn't actually want to be an academic. My heart was in church work. I also knew that having cared for my mother, I was now more attuned than I had been before to the needs of the hurting and the marginalized in our congregation. For me, there was no getting around it. In those years, God had shaped me into a pastor. I was a pastor. But that wasn't going to be possible in Churches of Christ, was it? I was beginning to think, I was beginning to think that I was going to have to make a move into a different stream of the church in order to live out my calling. I needed endurance to overcome a theology that doesn't have space for women to be ministers. About nine months after my mother passed away, the elders at Minter Lane asked me if I would consider the full-time, becoming the full-time associate minister. Many of my duties would remain the same, the communications and involvement pieces, but I would add a couple of other administrative pieces and most significantly, pastoral care. My elders had also seen that God had shaped me into a pastor. I gladly accepted their offer and served in that capacity for the next four years. Caring for this church pastorally meant walking with them as they faced challenges and changes. Perhaps the most significant of these had to do with the role of women in the church. Now, Minter Lane has been more inclusive than many churches for a few decades now. When I arrived, women read scripture, prayed, and taught Bible classes. Over the 10 years that I served that church, other things were added. First, women were welcomed to the table to serve communion. But that change meant that we lost a few members. Next, women were invited to offer communion meditations and prayers for the bread and the cup and we lost a few more members. Then, just a few years ago, Minter faced, I think, a turning point. It was going through an elder selection process, and there were, um, there were parameters in, in place for how this worked. The congregation would put forward names, and if a certain name met a certain number of nominations, then that person then moved on to another section of the selection process. 
And in that process, two women's names were put forward by enough members that they had to be moved on to the next part of the selection process. Both women talked to the elders about it, however, and they said, not yet. They wanted the elders to guide the church through a discernment process on the question first. Unfortunately, that got put on the back burner for a little while because in that time, the Supreme Court made a decision about legalizing gay marriage that the church felt it needed to deal with somehow. And Texas had an open carry gun law that also affected us and then we spent our time and our energy on these two questions instead of the other. But eventually, we did get back to it. In January 2017, we had a congregational retreat with a guest speaker who spoke about the historical precedent for women in leadership roles. After that retreat, one family left the church. One of our members, a Bible professor at ACU, was writing a commentary on the pastoral epistles at that very time. And he led a Wednesday night Bible study over those texts during the spring semester. In the fall, we divided the entire congregation into small groups to discuss the question, to give every member a chance to be heard. And finally, the elders met to talk about all that they had heard over the year. And in November 2017, they sent a letter to the members saying, in essence, we believe that every role in the body of Christ ought to be open to whoever is gifted and qualified regardless of gender. Many families left over that statement. For me, that was the toughest challenge I faced in ministry. I knew how everyone felt and I knew their hearts and they were all good hearts. I knew that some of them fell on very different ends of this issue, and I didn't know how to help bridge the gap between them. It's quite possible that there wasn't a way to bridge that gap. I knew that the young mother who said she would leave if we didn't move into a full egalitarian model meant only that she could not raise her children with integrity if she told them at home that men and women were equal, but then had to pretend otherwise at church. But I also knew that the older couples who couldn't get past the verse about uh, an elder being the husband of one wife had absorbed a theology in their own youth that said that salvation is dependent on getting church form and structure correct. And I felt for them, too. I knew these things, and I hurt with both groups. I knew that there was no way to keep everyone there and to keep everyone happy. And I am thankful that the elders came down where they did. But I grieved those who left. I was the first woman to preach at Mentor Lane in January 2018. It was an event that, for me, was marked with a wide range of emotions. When the elders first asked me, my first response was, are you sure the church is ready? 
I knew that whether they were or not, we were there. But I hesitated to be the source of more hurt for some. That Sunday had an almost festive atmosphere in some ways. My friends at Minter were excited to hear me preach. Friends from the community who attended other churches were there to support me, and they had brought some of their friends. One of my church members posted about my preaching on Facebook the night before it happened, and other Abilene people saw that and came. It was a joyous time. It was festive. But for me, it was also momentous, and I felt the weight of it. Whether it was true or not, I couldn't get past the idea that there were possibly some in that audience who were going to judge whether or not women could preach based on how well I did. Being a groundbreaker is not an easy task. It was also a sad day for me. For as I stood in that pulpit where I had stood many times before to deliver announcements, to read scripture, to offer a communion meditation and prayers, I looked out at my congregation and I saw the empty places where families usually sat. One couple who had been part of that church since it began in 1964 had left. Another couple had been like a second set of parents to me and it was heartbreaking not to be able to look out and see their faces as I preached. While I know intellectually that it wasn't because of me that they left, I am standing here to tell you that it is often nearly impossible to tease out the difference between people not thinking that it's wrong for a woman, no, for people thinking that it's wrong for a woman to hold these sorts of roles, and people thinking that I am wrong. In my years of ministry, I have needed endurance to survive the accusation of pride, whether implicit or explicit, that comes from being a woman in ministry. The accusation that questions you, that wonders, why can't you just be satisfied to serve silently? Why do you even need the title minister? It's an accusation that would never be leveled at a man who answered a call to ministry. A man who does that is celebrated. Despite these challenges at Minter and the bittersweet feeling that came with being invited to preach for the first time there, I was happy. I enjoyed my work and I loved my church. I knew that I probably wouldn't be satisfied with being an associate minister forever, but I wasn't really ready to tackle a move into a new stream of the church, which I figured needed, would have to happen if I wanted more than the role that I had. No, I was content. But God wasn't content. I was invited quite insistently, actually, by members of the Brookline Church of Christ Steering Committee to apply for the role of senior minister. I did, though I didn't actually expect anything to come of it. I thought it would be a good experience for me and for them. 
I didn't think for a moment that I would get the job. Surely they would want someone with more preaching experience. But for some reason, they offered me the position in April of 2018, and I accepted. I moved to Boston in July 2018 and was installed as their minister on July 29th, 2018. One of the questions that I had asked the Brookline Steering Committee in my interview was if they were prepared for pushback if they hired a woman. Their response was that people who would be worried about that had written Brookline off a long time ago. <laughs> for those who don't know, Brookline has been gender inclusive since the 1970s, I believe, and they had a woman preach for the first time in 1984. They were not worried about pushback. I, however, expected pushback. I didn't get as much as I thought. Um, in fact, I only had to delete one comment from my announcement that I took the position and unfriend that person on Facebook, of course. It was pushback that I did expect. It was pushback about, his comment was, your first sermon should be on 1 Corinthians 14. And had I thought quicker, I might have said, well, it sure will be. <laughs> but this was pushback I expected. See, I'm used to being attacked with scripture. I'm used to being that particular scripture in particular being used as a cudgel against me. And I have needed endurance to withstand it. And I have. Yes, I expected pushback. What I didn't expect was the other side of that. I didn't expect the sort of low-level fame that has come with being the senior minister of the Brookline Church of Christ. Shortly after I made my announcement and Brookline made theirs, I began to receive messages and Facebook friend requests from people who had once been a part of the Brookline Church of Christ. Encouraging messages, which was lovely. In June of last year, before I moved to Boston, I attended the Women in Ministry Conference here at Pepperdine. And I had two very surreal moments when women that I knew of from our collective, from our Facebook groups, two women that I have admired from afar, came up to me separately and said, I have wanted to meet you. And I thought, that's not how that sentence is supposed to go. <laughs> Another very similar one was when David Fleer added me on Facebook as a friend. Again, that's not how that's supposed to go. <laughs> Somehow, my name was getting out there. And then came this invitation to speak at Pepperdine. And I was not prepared for that. I am still not prepared for that, yet here I am. You would think that after all these years of being surprised by God, of God surprising me over and over, that I would not be surprised anymore, but I am. I continue to be. I marvel, too, at the way the Spirit works through situations like this. 
I can't believe that I agreed to come here to speak. I can't believe that the Spirit, the only message the Spirit put on my heart was for me to come and talk about my journey. If you're the Enneagram types, I am a five. This is incredibly uncomfortable for me. And then I marvel at the way the Spirit works through the title that I had to choose. Because you see, you have to choose your title for this event in the fall, long before we are actually coming here. And at the time, the lectionary had us walking through Hebrews. And so, because I was steeped in Hebrews, I chose part of this verse from Hebrews 10:36, For you need endurance. And the thing about Hebrews, and the analogy isn't perfect, so please forgive me, is that Hebrews was written to a group that was experiencing cognitive dissonance. They had known what it was that they believed in. They knew that Jesus had conquered death and was reigning on high, but they didn't see it. They looked out at the world and they didn't see it. They were persecuted. They didn't see the conqueror. And again, the analogy isn't perfect, so please forgive me. But for those of us who are women in ministry, isn't it similar for us? We know that we have been called but we experience cognitive dissonance because sometimes, often, the opportunities are not there and we are not taken seriously. I wrestled up until this morning with the purpose of my talk today. Again, I listened to the Spirit when I said that this was what I was going to talk about. And I still am not sure what the purpose of it is. But if you're listening and you are a woman who has felt called to ministry, don't give up. Stay strong. You are not alone. And you are loved. Thank you.